0: We'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back door. And again, I'm um, urging you to have your Bibles open so you can see as we walk through some of these critical verses here together this morning. Um, these are some important points, and I want to try to speak slowly and communicate clearly. And it's gonna, this is a sermon that's gonna require some extra effort on your part as the listener to, to, to look at the text, to, to listen closely, to process, to ask questions as you leave. Um, because these are some critical things that Jesus is trying to communicate here in this chapter. And before we get to these verses, I want to, to get our bearings, I want us to understand sort of where we are when we come to John chapter 12. If you remember, John chapter 1, starting in verse 19 through the end of chapter 11, John has taken you through three years of Jesus' ministry. And so uh, we get here to chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Chapter 12, verse 1, this is the last week of Jesus' life. So these 11 11 chapters previously have been dedicated to three years, and now we are going to look at John chapter 12 through chapter 20, and those 10 chapters are about one week so you just get the, you get the weight, you get the significance. We've basically got ten chapters dedicated to three years of ministry, then we've got ten chapters dedicated to one week. So so just in his writing, John is telling you that this one week, and a lot of important things get said, a lot of important things get done, and he's trying to get your attention here as we close in on this last week of Jesus' life. Life. Uh, number two, in terms of getting our bearings, there's, there's been a growing agitation with Jesus. He comes in and he performs his first miracle. He changes water to wine and people begin to wonder who he is. And we get to John chapter five, verse 18, and it says this the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. And so, really, from John chapter five, Now to chapter 12, there's been this growing hostility, people beginning to get agitated about Jesus. And here in this chapter, we read verses 9 through 11. uh, If you see that, when the crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, he's come to this Passover. They came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. If you remember, Lazarus has been raised from the dead in chapter 11. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They'd already decided to put Jesus to death, and now they're expanding that out to Lazarus. Lazarus is creating this hazard for us as well, and we're going to bring him into the fold of those who get put to death. And then if you look again in chapter 12, verse 17, we have the triumphal entry The crowd that had been with him, then when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they had heard he had done this sign, this raising of Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees, those who were in positions of power, said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after Jesus. The, The weight is shifting away from us and to him, and we can't allow that shift to take place. And so to put that shift to an end, we have to put the person to an end. Number three, in terms of getting our bearings, by the end of chapter 11, we've climbed to one of two peaks in the Gospel of John. The first peak ends in chapter 11, and it's highlighted by a series of signs. There's a series of miracles that Jesus is doing in these opening 10 chapters, and each miracle is meant for to, to draw attention to Jesus. For you to look at the sign and then see the sign, see the see the water turned into wine, and look at Jesus. See the blind man see and look at Jesus, see the man who's lame, and then look at Jesus, see Lazarus who's raised from the dead, and look at Jesus, and so we've been climbing, climbing this high peak to chapter 11, where Lazarus has come back from the dead, and that's the end of this first peak, now in chapter 12, we we be, we, we get to the top of the peak, it's as if in chapter 11, you get to the top of the peak, and you realize, now I can see a giant mountain in front of me. But I, I couldn't even see the first mountain because this smaller mountain was in front of me, and we, we get to the top of this, top of this mountain in chapter 11, and now we really begin another ascent. And that begins in chapter 12, and it ends in chapter 20. You'll, you'll remember when Jesus comes to Martha at the end of chapter 11, where we we come up to this first peak, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do, Do you believe this? Similarly said to Thomas at the end of the second peak, chapter 20, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So you get to the end of the first peak, and Jesus is saying, Do you believe? Do you, is this what you believe? You get to the end of the second piece, peak, and you get to Thomas, and he says, Believe. Is this is Is this what you believe? And so throughout the journey here, the question is, Is this what you believe about Jesus? And that's the question John is asking everyone here. Finally, just to get our bearings, the hour that has been talked about, Throughout, the book of John has finally arrived. John chapter 2, verse 4, my my hour has not yet come, Jesus says. John chapter 4, verse 24, but the hour is coming and is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. John chapter 7, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Then look in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come. So this hour that's been building has arrived. The hour has come that the Son of Man or Jesus might be glorified. And this referenced hour all the way through the book of John has arrived in John chapter 12. And I would say it's, it's arrived in this last week of Jesus' ministry. So as we now are going to narrow into these few verses in chapter 12, we have our bearings. I'm I'm going to try to examine this passage in this way. First, I want to ask the question, what does the word glorified mean? You see this in this text. What does it mean in chapter 23, I mean in verse 23 and verse 28, the word glorified? The second point is what are the ways the text describes how jesus glorifies god or how god is glorified so something's happening god's going to be glorified jesus is going to be glorified what does that mean and then how in the text we could say a lot about it but what are the things that the text points to and there are three things or three ways God is glorified, one, in Jesus' death, two, in Jesus' defeat of Satan, and three, in his drawing of all people. And then finally, briefly, just some applications of now how are we to glorify God? First, uh, the glory, the hour for the glory has come. What does that mean when Jesus says that in verse 23? And here's my definition For this particular context when we talk about glory, because sometimes it can mean praise. But I think in this context, it means something different. And my definition for glory here is the full visible manifestation of God's holiness. When when we're talking about glory, and I'm going to explain this a little bit more We're we're talking about a visible representation of God's holiness. And so when you think of God's holiness, what you're saying when you say it, whether you realize it or not, is you're talking about God's separation. He's different than me. When Isaiah sees God, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, God Almighty. He's saying, you're totally different than me. You're not in the same sphere. You're separated from me. And when we're talking about glory, we're talking about that holiness that's completely separate from me, making itself visible, drawing near. And so the full visible manifestation of God's holiness, maybe another way to say it, the tangible weightiness of God's character. So, so you might think of the character of God, but then the, the glory is feeling that character. It's, it's weighty. It's tangible to you. The psalmist says this in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and so what the, the psalmist is trying to say is when, when you see the heavens, when you see creation, you're getting a, a little Peace. You're getting a glimpse of God's character, God's weightiness. You you look out at creation and you say, someone, some thing out there must have created this. I I have eyes to see, so the creator must see things. The, I have ears to hear, so the creator must hear things. There is a certain order, so the creator must be in an ordered creator. I have passion and love, and so the the creator must be that way. So when you look at the creation, you. See see some some remnant some piece of God's character and so here in verse 23 the hour Jesus is referring to now this is the hour this is the moment in human history where you and I will experience the full weight of the character of God the, the creation shows you a part, but Jesus is saying, hey, here's the hour, here's the moment where humanity can really feel the full weight of God's character. It's, it's going to be the moment where there's the clearest, visible manifestation of God's holiness. What is that moment? What, what's the place in human history where we see God's Holiness manifested right in front of us. It's at the cross. This is the place where the weight of God is is poured out in a way that's uh, completely different than the creation. I, I wrote this down. Experiencing the glory of God in creation is like absorbing the weight of an elephant's tail. Experiencing the glory of God in the cross is like absorbing the full weight of the elephant itself. So when you see the creation and you think something about God, that's like feeling the elephant's tail. Wow, okay. That's not too bad. But when you see the glory of God in the cross, it's like the whole elephant sat on top of you. You're, you're feeling all of the weight of the glory of God. All of His character is being poured out into this particular moment. You're going to see something about God that you couldn't see in creation and you can't see in any other way unless you see it clearly in the cross. So when you read John chapter 12 verse 23, when God said or Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, John the writer intends for you to remember John chapter 1 verse 14, which I'll read for you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his what does it say? We have seen his glory See what John is saying? I've seen the glory. I've I've seen the, the character of God. I've seen the fullness of God poured out in a way that's beyond what I could even hardly describe. And this is how he describes it in a summary way. His glory is full. See, it's weighty. What's it full of? Grace and truth. God came down and I I got sat on by God. But the great thing is it was full, but it was full of grace and it was full of truth. And when John writes that in John chapter 14, so if you read John chapter 12:23, John intends for you to remember John chapter 1, verse 14. Does that make sense? When John writes chapter 1, verse 14, he intends you to remember something farther back. And, of course, he's talking to mostly Jews, and they would remember. And he intends you to remember Exodus chapter 33. And this is where Moses comes to God. And remember, Moses makes a request. God, would you show me your glory? See, I've, I've gotten a, a sense of it with the burning bush and some other things, but uh, it's like I've just experienced the elephant's tail and Moses is saying, would you just sit on me? Well, I mean, I just want the whole weight. Would you just come down and just, I, the, the, what I've seen has been so wonderful. I'm ready for the whole thing to just dump out on me. And what does God say? Hey, you can't handle it. Just get crushed. But I tell you what I'll do, I'll I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, I'll put my hand over you, and when I pass by, you can see sort of the back side of me, you can get more than the elephant's tail, maybe like the elephant's ear, but not the whole thing, because you just couldn't handle the whole thing, and God comes down, Exodus 33, you can read it later, but it says the whole thing later, but it says, the Lord came down in a cloud, and, and this is the first thing the Lord did, he proclaimed His name, isn't that interesting? The first thing he said is, I want you to tell you who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, I am has arrived, if that's even possible for somebody who's always there to arrive. The compassionate and gracious God Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion. In other words, the glory of God is full of grace. Yet, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Full of truth. See, full of grace and truth, Exodus 33 John chapter 1:14. "I've seen the glory of God, it's full of grace and truth, and here when we come to the hour, what you're going to see in this hour is going to be full of grace, and it's going to be full of truth. The cross is the place that's full of grace and truth. Well, what could be said about the glory of God at the cross is endless? and we aren't endless so i'm just going to talk about the things that are mentioned in the text three ways point number 2 three ways the text describes how jesus is glorified or how jesus glorifies god number 1 glory glory is displayed in the death of jesus that when when you see the cross when you see the hour jesus is telling us. He's telling this, 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 his disciples something before it actually happens. He says, When you see this hour, there's going to be glory, and the glory is going to be displayed, number one, in my own death. The, the full weight of God's character is going to be seen because I'm going to be willing to die so that you might live. Notice in verse 27, he says, My soul is troubled. Now my my soul is troubled. There's a disturbance in my soul. Why is that? Well, the hour is coming where all the forces of evil, where the ruler of this world, Satan, all of his power comes against Jesus. and, And Jesus is going to take on all the punishment, all the darkness, all the separation that we deserve. He's going to take on our behalf. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 22. This is Your hour when darkness reigns. Darkness should reign over us, but Jesus says, I'm going to absorb all of that darkness in this hour, the darkness that you deserve. And so this is the hour that the good shepherd sees the thief coming. I see from, remember John chapter 10? I can see the thief is coming, and he has come, and he's come to steal and kill and destroy. And I can see it he's he's stealing souls. He's killing souls. He's destroying souls and I am not going to let that happen. I'm the good shepherd and this shepherd in this hour is going to do what? He's going to lay down his life for his sheep. The hour is glorifying because instead of you experiencing or I me experiencing the full force of evil, He experiences it. And you and I get to experience the full force of grace. That's a great thing that happens at the cross. The full force of evil, the full force of God's wrath against evil comes down on Christ. And in exchange, we get the full force of grace. So God's glory is displayed in the in the death of Jesus. Secondly, God's glory is displayed in the death or in the defeat of Satan. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now when the ruler of this now will the ruler of this world be cast out? So we have to listen carefully here. The very first hint of Satan's defeat is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That the gospel is embedded in the Old Testament. That's why Paul tells Timothy, you have the scriptures that are good enough for your salvation, because you can see the gospel in the Old Testament. And here you see the, the Genesis, if I can use that word, the beginning of how God is going to put or defeat Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head. It will be a fatal blow, but you will strike his heel. It's going to be a painful but not ultimately fatal blow for the offspring of the woman, and we know that offspring is Christ. The Bible tells us that the first Adam was born into this world without sin, and that this Real person, this first Adam, was not only just a real person, but he was a representative person. Which means that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam fell, we all fell. We read that in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So Adam represents all of us. So when you think about getting to heaven and saying, Adam, if it just weren't for you, we'd be okay. He'd say, hey, you were me. We were we, You would have done the same thing. I'm representing all of us. And man, Adam fell so easily. Here he is. He has everything at his beck and call. He's got a relationship with God Almighty. And and the one thing he didn't have and he could never get, he, he sold. And when he sold out, we all lost. He's not just a real person. He's a representative person so that when he fell, we all fell. So when you, go to turn, when you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the apostle, says this, God sent the second Adam or the last Adam into the world. And this second Adam or last Adam was born without sin like the first one was. And this second Adam or last Adam, who is Jesus, is not only a real person, but he's also a representative person. And so, it, which means if, if Jesus can live according to God's commands, if he can listen to God, and if he can live without sin, then his death and resurrection secure salvation for everyone who believes. So if you trust in Jesus now, he is your new head. He's the one you're living underneath now. You're moving from your old head, Adam, to a new. You're born anew underneath a new family. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last man, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Okay, you tracking with me? I know that's, that's some heavy theology, but it's helpful because we haven't gotten to the verse yet. We're just trying to put that as a background so you understand in a macro sense what the Bible's talking about and where we are on this planet and what's important. And so now, here we are in verse 31 now, Satan has been defeated in some way at the cross. And I can say that I think the text is talking about at least two ways that Satan is defeated. Number one, Satan failed in his horrific attempt to get Jesus to sin. Satan did not fail in his attempt to get the first Adam to sin. And so now a new Adam has come in, and he's going to spend this Adam's entire life trying to get him to turn away from God and turn towards him. And, of course, we see it in a number of ways. Let's just remember a few. First, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Remember remember those temptations. And, and, and notice the contrast. The first Adam's in a garden. He has everything available to him and he falls easily. The second Adam is in a wilderness. He has nothing avail- available to him except for God Almighty and he succeeds. Well, that doesn't succeed for Satan's purposes, so he uses Jesus' only, only, own family against him. Jesus begins to teach. Remember, Jesus' family comes to the home that Jesus is teaching in and he says, then they say, hey, he's crazy. Imagine being Mary. Imagine being Jesus when Mary comes and Mary says, yeah, he's crazy. I mean, it'd be mighty tempting at that point to do something that would not be God honoring. Well, Jesus withstands that, so he chooses his closest friend, Peter. Remember, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, we're not interested in doing that cross thing. Let's try another way. Jesus looks at Peter and what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. I know that voice. That voice is trying to get me off track. And that voice came in the wilderness. That voice came out of my own family. That voice is now coming out of my own friend. I know who you are. Satan uses the crowd, the weight of the crowd to put Jesus push Jesus off course. Satan uses the the power of the high priest and the Pharisees, the power of Pilate and the political rulers to push Jesus off course. So you can see it's bearing down on this this hour. We we've got to get this man to turn away from God. So we we're, we're pushing all of the forces now all the forces of evil against this man and and at this hour Things break open that you and I couldn't possibly understand. All hell breaks loose against Jesus just to get this man to say, I'm done. So when when the person walks by the cross and says, oh, he could save others, but he can't save himself. What voice is that? That's Satan. Come on, Jesus. Just one time. Bring down the hammer on these people. Do something that you ought to do that's against your father's will, then I'll have the last Adam, and instead Jesus says, Father, forgive them they don't They don't know what they're doing. Jesus never turned away, so he defeated Satan at the cross. Second way Jesus defeated Satan at the cross was Satan was stripped of the one weapon he could use to damn Paul Phillips. See, Satan has this weapon, very powerful weapon, and he gets defeated at the cross. The weapon is the accusation of unpaid for sin. So John imagines, the Bible writers, imagine a courtroom scene, a judgment. A courtroom where Paul Phillips comes in and Satan's standing there and saying, Oh, man, I don't have enough trees to cut down for the paper that would be required to record all the sins of this man. And I know it's true. But when he pulls out the paper... It's all blank. There's not one sin listed. And he's rattling it off going, hey, I wrote all those down. And God says, no, no, no. Paid in full. Satan, get out of here. And that's how he casts Satan out. He, He casts him out of the courtroom. And then he looks at Paul Phillips, who's shaking in his boots, if he's even standing at all. And he says, Paul, therefore, there is now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand. You're a son of God. That's the gospel. So Satan is cast out in that sense. Still effective today in some ways, wielding wielding a weapon of guilt, but ultimately not going to be successful in that last day of judgment. The glory of God is on display by drawing all people. Verse 32. Let's just read that. And when I, Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. D.A. Carson says this about the verse All people means all people without distinction both Jews and Greeks. You look back in verse 20, you see the context of Jesus' teaching begins with a request by some Greeks who wish to see Jesus. Therefore, the phrase all people refers to all people without distinction, not all people without exception. See, anyone can you just have to trust in Christ and it's been said over and over John 3:16 so God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him John 5 whoever hears my word and believes in him has eternal life John 6 all that the father gives me gives to me will come and whoever comes to me I will never cast out I am the light of the world whoever Follows me, will never walk in darkness. John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question. It's not a narrow gate that you could pass through. It's a big, wide gate. Whoever, it's just that not many people choose that gate. The cross doesn't guarantee universal salvation. It promises salvation to everyone who believes. No distinctions are made at the cross, whether Jew or Greek, because that's not what matters at the cross. What matters at the cross is Jesus, not you. Finally, there's an application here, if you believe. Some of you are sitting here and you need to discern whether you believe. I mean, I've unpacked a lot of information here. Is this what you believe? But if you're saying, yes, that's what I believe, I'm trusting and I'm trusting in Christ, then Jesus clearly says here in his last week, you have to live in in accordance with with your belief so that in verse 36 you can be a son of light. And the way we live is back in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone, any follower, anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am there will be my servants also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So let me just close with these these important truths here. It's a whole sermon I'm trying to capture in just a few minutes. When you look at verses 25 and 26, you should think, hey, this is hard. That's probably not surprising. <laughs> if anyone loses his life... You know, seeks to save his life, will lose it. It's hard, but it's glorious. Falling to the ground and dying is hard. And as a Christian, the things you have to die to in this world are numerous. Yet, it's glorious when you die to those things. Because in the dying, the dying is not in vain. You're dying to things. You're dying to maybe dreams that you had. You're dying to directions that you thought you had for yourself. You're dying to capabilities that you're never going to have. You're dying to some of those things, your own fleshly desires. Actually, that death is not in vain. It causes fruit to be born. People watching your dying actually are birthed from that into the kingdom of God. Hating your life in this world is hard. Martin Luther put it this way, letting goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, it's hard. But, but this temporary turning away promises eternal life. Finally serving and following Jesus, especially in light of his command, take up your cross and follow me. That's hard. But but I want you to try to picture that it's beyond glorious what happens to those people who do that. Says it in verse twenty six. The God, the Almighty God, the, the one who is Who doesn't just emanate light, he is light. What does it say? He will honor that person. You're going to stand before the light of the world, and his light's going to be shining on you. And he's going to say, Look at this guy. Look at this girl. Incredible. I want everyone to look at them and honor them. So it's hard. It's hard to die. But it's worth it. The glory of God that outshines the sun that you may not see today is worth following after. Do do you believe the gospel? If you do, what you're going to be asked to sacrifice will be hard but it will be glorious. Let's pray. Lord, I feel this way every week. So much could have been said. So hard to communicate these, these uh, truths, the size and the weight of an elephant in a few minutes. But it's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Spirit that I prayed for in the beginning.